undoubtedly a study of the, of the final week of Jesus' ministry, earthly ministry. We all assumed, we all knew that we were going to find our play ourselves in that large upper room with Jesus and the disciples. I want us to open this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 17, please. What a remarkable thing on God's timeline. I shared with you last week that nothing happens in God's economy uh, apart from His planning. It's all according to His will, um, structured the way He designed it to go before the foundation of the world. We saw last week that important moment in Jesus' life. We saw that it was not by accident that it happened. It was indeed God's perfect timing. This week we find Jesus in the large upper room. He has entered into Jerusalem now uh, on the colt, and they had laid down palm branches in front of him, uh, saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, in the highest. He cleanses the temple, and he finds a place. He has the disciples uh, go and set up and prepare this place where they will celebrate the Passover together. And I want you to just think for a moment, something sometimes we read over it and uh, we may not really pause to give it uh, the, the, the notice that it deserves. Think about this for just one moment. Jesus had obviously celebrated the Passover every year of his life. But think about this one. He is now in this large upper room with all 12 of the disciples. And, after the, and there they are celebrating the Passover. They are eating the roasted lamb. They are eating the bitter herbs. And, and I just can't help but, but, but remove from that the significance of Jesus being the Lamb of God, standing literally at the threshold, about to, about to uh, dive into great uh, agony and pain and grief and bitterness, if you will. So here the perfect Passover lamb, Jesus, the one without spot or blemish, is now in this room celebrating the Passover when God delivered his people out of Egypt. And here he is celebrating that meal with those disciples. No doubt it was a very intimate, somber moment as Jesus would eat that meal with his disciples. But then, unlike all of the other times, Jesus institutes something different. This was the final time he would celebrate the Passover with them. And this time, instead of supper being ended and, and, and them going about their normal routine, Jesus reached over and he grabbed some bread and he broke it and he said, This is my body which is given for you. And gave it to the disciples and told them to eat it all. And then he took the cup and he handed it to him and he said, Divide this among yourselves. This is my blood which is shed for you. And he was giving them this reminder. He was instituting in that upper room this reminder of his sacrifice. So that when we come together as believers, as often as we do it, we may remember the Lord's death till he comes. Some of you may remember me saying not long ago, it's a, it's a, a sad state of affairs when you consider that God had to put a reminder for us to remember. In the scriptures... 
And not just a reminder to remember his sacrifice, but a reminder to remember what is the greatest event, what is the most life-changing, dynamic event in our life. And that was the sacrifice of Jesus. And God is saying, even something that is so amazing, so remarkable as my son's sacrifice and how it applies to your life in particular, God says, I know that we all possess the ability to forget even something as amazing as that. The Bible doesn't tell us how often we are to observe the Lord's Supper, but it does give us the, the standard on which to do, the attitude to have, what this supper is supposed to look like. And I want you to look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The Apostle Paul is writing to the believers at Corinth, and he's instructing them because there's been a problem in the way that they have been observing the Lord's Supper. And he says in verse 17, Now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. Certainly that can't happen with the church. Certainly churches can't come together for the worse and not for the better. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. For I have received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Look at verse 27. Therefore, because of what he said, because of the standard given to us by Christ, therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, for this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep or have died. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. Three things Paul's teachings remind us of considering the Lord's Supper. And I hope as we were, as Jason had set the stage here literally and also set the stage spiritually speaking, giving us a time of repentance and cleansing, uh, that we took advantage of that, whether at the altar or at our pew. 
because I want you to see something. These three things that the Lord's Supper is supposed to do for us in, in light of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The first thing is this. The Lord's Supper is to cause us to look backward. Now think about it for a moment. The Lord's Supper is to cause us to look backward. Jesus said it. The Apostle Paul repeated the same words of Jesus. This do in remembrance of me. Jesus is saying, I'm about to sacrifice. I'm about to break my body and shed my blood. And I do not want you to forget it. Now think about this for a moment. If God went to such great lengths to institute this ordinance for the church, for as often as we do it, that we would remember it, what is the danger of forgetting that? If God worked so hard to make sure that we would remember His death, then what happens if we forget it? In Deuteronomy chapter 6, there, we get an idea of something. We get, it, we get this, this understanding of what it looks like to forget significant matters of our life in regards to our spiritual well-being. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, when God was bringing his children, had brought them out already, and was getting ready to declare that this new land, the promised land, was theirs. God said in Deuteronomy chapter 6 that you are going to have houses that you didn't have to build. You're going to have gardens that you didn't have to plant. You're going to have wells that you did not have to dig. And what God said is, be careful, lest you forget the Lord your God. You see, sometimes in our life, when we forget of that sacrifice that was paid for us, we realize that humility also is forgotten as well. You see, when we go back and visit the cross, when we open up the Scriptures and reread and remember His sacrifice on our behalf, it humbles us that a God so good and so great would look upon us who are anything but good and great. That while we were still sinners, He died for us. That He would take every one of my sins upon Him and the sins of the whole world and would say, Jamie Tickle is worth dying for. That is an incredibly humbling thing. And what God warned His people of in Deuteronomy 6 was you're going to get all of these things and you are soon going to be tempted to forget that I am the Lord that gave these to you. And 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 9. They are warned of forgetfulness. In fact, the Bible says that those that forget are nearsighted and they have forgotten that they have been cleansed of their sins. You see, the Bible tells us that we can, in fact, that is used in reference to a barren life. A spiritually barren life. Because the, the Apostle Peter begins describing what, what our fruitful life is to look like. With this new life in Christ, how what we are to abound in. And yet he goes on to say that those that have forgotten they were cleansed are not, in essence, going to be bearing fruit. They're going to be barren trees with absolutely no fruit on them. So I have to, I have to believe that when I am able to remember what Christ did for me on Calvary's Hill, it's going to humble me. I have to believe that when I am living my life with a reminder of the sacrifice paid for me, it's going to cause me to invest my life in His kingdom's work. If one died for all, then all have died. 
And I will live as a dead man walking, investing in the kingdom's work, allowing his spirit to work through me and his word to have residence in me. And what's going to happen from that reminder is that I will be living a fruitful life by the power of the spirit of God. Peter doesn't give up on this idea of remembering. In fact, twice in his second and final letter, he mentions this idea of memory. Anybody think why maybe, Peter, the memory may be so important? It's a lot of what Jonathan acted out this morning. In that dramatic monologue where Peter said, no, though they may all forget, forsake you, I won't. And Jesus reminded him before the cart crows, he will deny him three times. And you remember what happened when Peter heard that rooster crow and he remembered the words of the Lord. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Forgetfulness is not just something we can accidentally do. In chapter 3, what he says is that there are those who willfully forget that God created this world and ultimately he destroyed the world through Noah's flood. What he's saying is that those people are living unprepared lives for what God has in store. There were those who heard of the creator. There were those who heard that he judged the world, but they have willingly forgotten they would have it cross their mind and they would push it out and replace it with something else more pleasant for them to think of you see if god wants us to remember we would have to believe that there's a reason for it and what we can find here are three significant reasons for remembering that i may remain humble that i may be prepared for that day when i stand before god that i may remember he is the creator and the judge of all the earth but also also that I will not forget my previous cleansing so that I may live in part with that divine nature. Jesus wanted us to pause as often as we do it and remember the Lord's death till he comes. It doesn't just cause us to look backward, reminding us how easy it is to forget. The Bible tells us that we're to look inward. If you look at verse 27, therefore, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Interesting comment, because it all seems in verse 27 and 29 to hinge on this idea of an unworthy manner, which would lead us to believe what is an unworthy manner? What does it mean to partake? In fact, some of you, your heart rate may be increasing a little bit because you may be saying, wait a second, what if I partook this morning in an unworthy manner? What does that mean? Well, we would want to say, well, that would mean an unbeliever partaking of the Lord's Supper. Well, obviously, if an unbeliever is partaking in the Lord's Supper, the danger of that is, is that they are participating in something that has no meaning for them personally in their life. It it was just a historical moment, but not a personal, redemptive moment for them. So they really don't understand the shed blood or the broken body. They have never come to Calvary and and confessed Him as their Lord and Savior. And, And I would encourage everybody who has never trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior to refrain from partaking of that supper until you have made that relationship with Christ personal. But that doesn't just that doesn't get it off the hook, because if you notice in verse 27, therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Now, look at verse 28. But let a man examine himself 
And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. He's writing to believers, albeit incredibly carnal believers, but he's writing to believers. And it appears as though this unworthy manner is where they have not taken it seriously. They've used both the the, the Passover meal and the Lord's Supper as an attempt to eat and drink, to get full and to get drunk. They've cut in front of those who have real needs and moved themselves to the front of the line. It was all about them, and they were not giving careful consideration to the fact that this is a symbol of one who willingly gave his life for me. You see, as believers, we should hate, the Bible says, even the garment stained with sin. In the heart of each of us as believers, we ought to hate sin. We know God does. We ought to hate it, despise it, because we know it's bad. Because we know sin damages us. Because we know sin damages relationships. Because we know sin damages our witness. Because we know of the damaging effects of sin. But that's not the only reason. We ought to despise sin. I ought to despise sin. If for no other reason than it was my sin that caused him to hang on the tree. It was me. I once told my pastor. I said those words that everybody has heard before, I'm sure. You've probably heard a pastor say this, and I had, and I repeated it. I said, if, if I was the only person on the earth, Jesus still would have come to the earth and died on the cross for me. And that's true. But my pastor at the time made it even more true. He said, that is true, that if you were the only person on the earth, you, he still would have come to the earth and died for you. But if you were the only person on the earth, you still would have had to have been the one to nail him there. And it's so true. He was nailed there because of my sins. And I ought to despise sin. How could you and I, honestly, How could we come to this place where we have bread in one hand? Torn bread, representing the torn body. And a cup of of juice representing the blood. Not the blood, it's not the body, it represents that. How could we look at that and have genuine, true communion with the one who tore his body and shed his blood while we're living in sin that hung him there? I'm not saying that we are perfect. Don't don't misunderstand me. I'm saying there is a vast difference between sinning as as a, a, a as an, an, an accident, if you will, or living in this clothed flesh. There is a difference, a vast difference, if you will, between sinning and living in sin. 
continuing on this course of sin without ever confessing it to God and repenting of that. How could we grab the cup and grab the bread and say thank you for the sacrifice while we in here are practicing and living continually, habitually in sin that placed Him there? What a mockery! We would be making of that sacrifice. That is an unworthy manner to live in their sense, pushing people aside to get the food. Taking the bread as though it was going to nourish you. Friend, if you can get nourished off that little bit of bread we give you, you've got a stomach about that big. To put ourselves in the place where it's about us. No, it's not. The Lord's Supper is supposed to cause us to look backward. At that sacrifice, but it's also supposed to be a moment where we say, Lord, search my heart. We may not even have to say, Lord, search my heart, because it might be right here. We know exactly when we walk in this door what we are struggling with, what we have not yielded to God, what we are walking, what we, if we are continually, habitually walking in sin, unrepented, unconfessed to God. And then we have the gall to say thank you for that sacrifice. That is mockery. Of his death. I will show you how seriously God takes it. Verse 30. For this reason many are weak. And sick among you. And many sleep. He's saying you want to know why your prayer list is so long. Why there are so many that are sick among you. You want to know why so many around in, in first Baptist Corinth have died. He says. It's because they're taking the Lord's Supper. In an unworthy manner. That's how seriously God takes this institution of the Lord's Supper. The third and final thing is that it reminds us to look forward. Jesus said he would not drink of the fruit of the vine until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He reminded him, one and done. I'm taking it with you right here. But there will come a day where we will celebrate again. But that's not the time now. This is it. Once I'm doing it with you, you do it apart from me. But I, Jesus said, will not take the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God has come. Notice what he says in verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. You proclaim his death till he comes. Aren't you glad that God never ends His story on the short end of the stick? Aren't you glad to know, think about this for a moment, in all that God has done and in all that God has promised, it has always or is promised to always end in a glorious crescendo. Jesus is saying this, God's word is teaching us this. That when we come together and we are looking backwards and we are humbled at that sacrifice and we're looking inward and we're confessing and repenting of sin, being grateful for the sacrifice, the Bible tells us not just to look backward and not just to look inward, but in this practice, as we take the bread and as we take the cup, He says, I want you to look forward. 
Because there is coming a day when the kingdom will be ushered in. Folks, let me tell you something. There is coming a day when we will not observe the Lord's Supper anymore. There is coming a day where we get together at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're not, we're not looking back at the sacrifice that was made. We're looking forward to the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's at the table with us. We're not mourning the loss. We're celebrating the gain. Think about what Jesus has just told them. He has just entered into Jerusalem on a colt. Think about this. He just came into Jerusalem seated on a colt. Revelation says there's coming a day when He is sitting on a white horse and His name is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He came into Jerusalem meek and humble. He comes back mighty and powerful. Guys, He came to set up a kingdom. He's coming together the kingdom. Jesus is telling us, the Apostle Paul is telling us, that though this is a sober, somber, serious moment, we can look forward to the promise when we eat it. We say in our heart, God, you sent Jesus to die for me. But you're also sending him back. I don't care how difficult life is right now. You know, you might be taking that Lord's Supper and you may have heard a teaching on the Lord's Supper before and you may get in there and you may just feel absolutely down. You may come in and you're humbled you're thinking about that, and then you're like, yeah, I've got this, and this sin, and this sin, and this sin, and man, I just struggle with them, and you may just feel absolutely defeated. God reminds us that the past is a great place to visit, but we're not called to live there. Take your eyes as you take that, that juice and you take that bread and look forward to the moment that He will restore all things he will judge the nations righteously did you notice he said in verse 31 for if we would judge ourselves we would not be judged he reminded us that if we took care of sin in our own life as we realized it we dealt with it we repented of it turned from that sin if we did that ourselves we he would not do that for us and I want to ask you this morning, as we have come together for the purpose of remembering His sacrifice, have you made that sacrifice real in your life? Because honestly, His work is done. He died once and for all, for all mankind. Praise God, He's never going to hang on the cross again. He paid the penalty for you and for I in full. And the ball is literally... In our court. What we do with Jesus who is called the Christ is of the most importance. For how we answer that question. For what we do with the sacrifice of Jesus literally determines our eternal course. Today. You may have been celebrating the, past, or the Lord's Supper. You may have eaten the bread and drank from the cup. But maybe right here in your heart, you know that you have never come to faith in Christ. It was a ritual and never a relationship. 
Aren't you glad to know that Jesus can still forgive those sins on the cross as well? He has done it. It's taken care of. Today, you can have brand new life. Maybe for some of you, that thought of Jesus coming does not just bring joy as it does millions of believers, but for you, it may, may strike fear right in your heart. To know that the Bible is true as it says he is coming on a white horse to judge the world. He brought peace and then he's bringing a sword. And that may, that may strike fear in your heart. You know what? There is no need to fear if you are a believer. If you've come to faith in Christ, that, that there is nothing more to fear because he is your groom coming to retrieve and set up his bride. I'm going to ask you, what business is there to do in your heart this morning? Is it salvation? This morning, would you be willing to climb Calvary's Hill and say, yes, yes, I see the price and it was paid for me. He died for me personally and I must accept him personally as well. Maybe you're like Heather. Maybe you have heard of Jesus Christ. You've gotten saved, but you've never walked in that first step of obedience to follow the Lord in baptism. Maybe you've got issues in your heart and maybe you took a, the, the Lord's Supper unworthily this morning. I would encourage you to say, God, I realize now what I did was wrong. And I want you to work on my heart to forgive me, to, to empower me to overcome those sins that I'm struggling with. Whatever that is, maybe it's a rededication of life. Maybe something totally unrelated to the sermon this morning. God has used it in a particular way to bring you to a place of repentance. Is it salvation? Is it baptism? Is it rededication? Is it church membership? What is it that God has so clearly placed on your heart? And then the question is, will you respond accordingly?